This is a HeadGum Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. Thank you so much for joining me on the show once again. If you haven't listened before, what we're going to do today is I'm going to talk to an amazing expert about all the incredible things they know that I don't know, that you might not know. My mind is going to be blown. Your mind is going to be blown. Both of our minds are going to be blown together. We are going to have a great time. I want to start by thanking everyone who supports this show on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash adamconover to sign up and you'll get bonus podcast episodes, exclusive stand-up I haven't posted anywhere else, including my 2019 hour Mind Parasites Live, and you can join our live community book club where we read a book and then discuss it live with the author. Our next book, we just picked it, is Never Enough, The Neuroscience and Experience of Addiction by Judith Grizel. So if you want to read that with us, discuss, and discuss it live with the author, head to patreon.com slash adamconover. Conover to support the show. But let's talk about this episode. I just got back from a trip overseas and it got me thinking about flight attendants. You know, we're all familiar with flight attendants, right? They bring us ginger ale and V8 at 30,000 feet. They tell us when and how to put our masks on. And, you know, if required, they might duct tape an unruly passenger to their seat or two. We know them, we love them, and hopefully we all treat them with respect. But What we fail to realize often is that flight attendants are also a crucial piece of American labor history. In fact, and this is absolutely true, the efforts of flight attendants transformed the American workplace and provided workplace protections for women, which are still codified into case law to this day because of those flight attendants. Here's what happened. If you go back to the 1960s, the job of what were then called stewardesses was sexist as fuck. They were required to be a certain age, maintain a certain weight, and they were certainly not allowed to be married, pregnant, or over 40 years old. They also had to undergo training at a place called the, quote, charm farm, where they learned how to be perceived as attractive and available, wink, wink, to the skinny-tied men they served above the clouds. That's right. These stewardesses were literally presented to the men who flew as available to them, as single girls who were ready to mingle. And unsurprisingly, as a result, they faced systemic and unrelenting harassment and abuse, not to mention bargain basement wages. Now, stewardesses slash flight attendants didn't have much in the way of power at the time. So a group of women did what generations of workers have done. They organized. They formed a union. First, as part of the Transit Workers Union. But when that didn't go their way because of sexism in the union, those women went their own way and formed their own union. And that union fought like hell for them. They were among the very first to use Title VII of the Civil Rights Act to fight sex discrimination. They filed complaints and lawsuits with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. They fought for better contracts and a less sexist workplace, and they won. Not only that, because they were the first ones to level many of these types of lawsuits, their wins became established case law. They set precedents, and that means that their wins are still benefiting working women and working people generally to this day because they establish protections that we all now take for granted. So, look, this is an amazing civil rights story that is very rarely told. 
And the coolest thing is that many of the women who fought this battle are still alive. Now, a couple years ago, I had the honor of talking with one of these early flight attendant organizers, Pat Gibbs, on Adam Ruins Everything, on our Adam Ruins Flying episode, which, if you want to check it out, is still available on HBO Max. Well, I was really gratified to hear that our segment actually inspired the journalist Nell McShane Wolfhart to write a book about these incredible women who achieved these incredible things. And when I heard that, I insisted that we have Nell on to talk about it. So... It is my honor today to welcome Nell McShane Wolfhart to the show. She's the author of The Great Stewardess Rebellion, How Women Launched a Workplace Revolution at 30,000 Feet. Please welcome Nell McShane Wolfhart. Nell, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks so much, Adam. I'm happy to be here. So tell me uh, very quickly the story about how you came to write this book, because um, I I think it's a particularly fascinating story. (laughs) Well, coincidentally, um, yes, I used to have a column in the New York Times travel section where I interviewed celebrities about what they took in their carry-on luggage, Mm -hmm. which was best job I've ever had. (laughs) And one of the people I was interviewing, a certain Adam Conover, had just done an episode of his TV show on... Using the word celebrity very loosely. (laughs) No comment. Um, (laughs) It was a slow day at the New York Times. They were like, we got to fill these inches. Who can we call... Who well, will, will, will marginally fit, but at least can give us some quotes. Okay, sorry, go on. I'll just say you have a very good publicist. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you happened to tell me the story of one of the episodes you had just done of Adam's Ru- Adam Ruins Everything, which was all about stewardesses and sort of the seamy underside of what we think of as this like golden age of travel, very glamorous, very Don Draper, cocktails on the plane, roast beef, all this fancy stuff. Um, And you were telling me the story, and I said to you, actually, I think I even said out loud, wow, that sounds like it would make a great book. And (laughs) here we are. (laughs) And you, from that conversation, went off and wrote a book about it. Yes, I did give you a thank you in the acknowledgments, which is all the credit you should expect. Wait, you did? I didn't even, you sent me a copy, but I didn't even look at the acknowledgments yet. Hold on a second. Because who reads the acknowledgments? Normally it's just. Oh, I read them first. I always read them first. kids are so. Oh, you read them first. Oh, just an interesting glimpse into somebody's personal life. It's sort of like gossip, but, you know. Wait, are the acknowledgments in this galley? I think maybe the acknowledgments didn't make the galley that that they sent. No, they're in the back of the book. You're in there because I wanted to double check before this call that I had actually said thank you. (laughs) I was thinking about the dedication. I was like, she dedicated the book to me. It's completely different. Um, Well, thank you. I really appreciate the attribution at all. But of course, it's not even uh, it's not even my story. Big thanks to Adam Conover who gave me the idea for this book during an interview. Hell yeah. That's a wonderful citation for me. Um, but yeah, this is a story that we did on Adam Ruins Everything um, a couple years ago, very briefly in the in the seven minutes that we that we normally do stories like this. It's a really cool story, but I actually only know as much as we did about it on television. So I'm really excited to hear a fuller picture of how the uh, you know flight stewardesses changed uh, flying forever. Um, so please, like, let's let's launch into it. Like, let, let's talk about that moment. Uh, at the, you know, that we have the Mad Men vision of air travel. Oh, everyone used to wear suits. It was so nice. And they gave you free food and it was so great. 
What was what was the actual reality for the people working on those planes? Well, a lot of that is really true. I mean, there were like fancy bars. There were men in suits. There was there were you know uh, flight attendants slicing roast beef onto your plate and tossing salads in front of you and making cocktails. Um, at, even at one point, there was an actual piano on the back of a plane. They had mm. cleared away about 20 rows of seats and put in a piano and opened up sort of a piano bar lounge area with sofas <laughs> and a cocktail bar. And <laughs> this is the best part. Any passenger who wanted could go to the back of the plane and start playing the piano and like singing along. And <laughs> this, this sounds like such a nightmarish idea by today's standards. Literally giving your fellow passengers a way to make more noise and encouraging them to do it. I cannot even imagine what that would have been like. It didn't last very long, I think, partially because people got too drunk because, you know, open bar and partially because it was just a terrible idea. And also they lost about 20 rows of seats to make space for the piano. So they couldn't sell them any tickets. But well, so let's talk about that piece of it for a second, because that was my first thought. Like, hold on a second. When they when they would have open bars or whatever, like wandering around. Um, it, today they try to pack seats into every square inch of a plane and they're constantly trying to push more and more and more in. So what, what was the situation under which like it made economic sense to do things like that? Flying was much more expensive then and much more exclusive. I'm talking about the sixties, um, yeah. and then into the seventies and it's kind of gone downhill ever since, but the main target of every single airline was business travelers. And mm. those were almost exclusively men. Um, and it's, that might still be true today, but back then it was absolutely true. They were not really targeting families. They were not targeting single women. They were targeting male business travelers. Um, and so they created all these amenities to to make it appealing to them. There were, you know, cigars and like a big part of what happened with the stewardesses is that they were sort of selling the stewardesses as part of the attraction of, of the flight. Mm-hmm. Like each airline would try and differentiate itself from other airlines by virtue of what its stewardesses looked like, what kind of uniforms they wore. Wow. And this was meant to be part of the thing that like sold these upmarket tickets to these male business travelers. It was really kind of like a Playboy Club style marketing where it's like part of the part of the appeal of flying on this airline is that an attractive stewardess is going to wait on you hand and foot in this sort of like sublimated sexual way that that is I mean you know there's no we're we're not talking about actual sex work here but we are talking about a sort of relationship that evokes a perhaps that part of your lizard brain in some Um, way it was only somewhat sublimated honestly like through the 60s it was a lot about um you know the amount of personal care you'd get from every stewardess and the, Mm -hmm. the photos were of these smiling Thin white women, always smiling, always, always smiling. That was like an unquestioned part of the job. Um, And then as the 70s kind of got going, they really got into like sex cells and Mm. the ads became way more overt overt in terms of selling sex to these passengers. And the uniforms got tinier. I mean, there was one airline called National, which had a whole campaign and it used photos of real stewardesses. So it would be like a photo of a smiling stewardess looking straight at the camera and it would say her name and the copy read, I'm Cheryl, fly me. Or then there would be Donna, I'm Donna, fly me. And of course the airline said like, oh, it's just a bit of fun. We don't mean anything by it, but the flight attendants, as you can imagine, 
hated it. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like it honestly sounds like an early 2000s Britney Spears song level of innuendo. <laughs> uh, and, and we we used yeah, I mean, I remember we used those uh, those images in our in our episode, and, and I they're in your book as well. Like they are the kind of ad you look at by today's standards. You're like, holy shit, yeah. It's pretty astounding. Um, and some of the photos are just like, you know, stewardesses in bikinis. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's not subtle, <laughs> let's uh, to say the least. <laughs> um, so what were the conditions like for the women who actually did that work? Well, when my book starts, which is in the mid-1960s, um, sort of underneath that kind of very glamorous exterior, um, the actual working conditions were pretty oppressive. You, you couldn't even get a job if you weighed over a certain amount. Mm. There was like, a, like if you were over, I would say maybe a modern size six, you know, it mm. would be impossible to get a job. You couldn't wear glasses. You couldn't have any scars. You couldn't really have acne. Mm. And you couldn't have children or be married and you couldn't be more than 32. In fact, they wouldn't hire you if you weren't in your early 20s, but they would wow. absolutely fire you on your 32nd, in some cases 33rd, in one generous case, 35th birthday. Yeah. Were they doing like weigh-ins and stuff like that? Like, hey, hey, before you get on the plane, like just step on the scale? Absolutely. In a lot of wow. the airline offices, um, like in the operations room in the airport where the, you know, the flight attendants and the pilots and the administrative staff would work and they would wait there before they got on the plane, there would be a scale in the middle of the office, in the middle of operations, and any supervisor or even any pilot could just like grab a stewardess and put her on the scale whenever they wanted. And if she weighed too much, they could take her right off the flight. Wow. Like, hey, sorry, you know, fuel is expensive. Like, I'm sure there's like a way to, uh, uh, like a, a fig leaf that they put over it. To, no, no, not at all. No, I mean, not at no all. They're just no, like, it was, hey. it was very clearly mandated that you had to stay under a certain weight. They had weight charts that you had to adhere wow. to. If you were a certain height, you had to stay, you had a maximum weight that you had to stay under. Wow. I mean, that's like, you know, there there are jobs that, uh, are, you know, in show business that like we, we accept this sort of thing with, but even for that, even for that kind of job, that sounds like really onerous and like de- demeaning and degrading. Extremely degrading. Um, but it was something a lot of the women didn't think about that much, or at least at mm. the beginning. Um, I did a long interview with Patricia Ireland, who was the president of the National Organization for Women for 10 years. And she was a stewardess. She used to be a stewardess Mm. of Pan Am. And she told me even when she went for her stewardess interview back in the early 1970s, you know, the recruiter like pulled her into the room and he asks her to like walk back and forth across the room in front of her and to turn around very slowly. So basically examining her body to make sure that she looked good enough. And she told me, I didn't even think about it. I didn't think anything of it. It was just perfectly normal. Wow. I mean, was this uh, just to get a little bit more context, because I was certainly not alive uh, during the 60s. Were there like... Was this at all common in other sort of women's service occupations or or was this like really a step up in the airline industry? I think the flight attendants are a particularly unique industry. Like their their job, so much of their job was about appearance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this became a problem as I explore in the book is, you know, passengers stop taking them seriously because they're, you know, the airlines are pushing this idea that they're really just there to be looked at and they're essentially a flying cocktail waitress. And so appearance was like, you know, you you wouldn't even be interviewed for the job if you didn't meet like a list of 20 different criteria all about mm-hmm. appearance. 
Um, and then they would bring you to a stewardess school and teach you how to become a stewardess. But even there, most of the classes were about hair. They were about makeup, about nails, about, you know, how many inches above your eyebrow the hat should be. Um, Anything about the emergency <laughs> exits in the classes or like or flotation <laughs> devices or smoke in the cabin, any of that? Well, I guess I there was, was probably a lot of smoke in the cabin. It was the 60s, but... A lot of smoke in the cabin, and I would say that was maybe 10% of the classes at, um, wow. at the stewardess school. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was a less safe time as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, w- was, th- was this something that you, you spoke about the woman from the National Organization of Women who was like, yeah, that was normal. But like, I assume that for this to change, women eventually must have been like, hey, this sucks. <laughs> At some point, right? <laughs> yeah, well, that's really the story of my book. It's about how yeah. women learn to to realize, hmm, this sucks, <laughs> mm-hmm. and what they did about it. Um, yeah, so, well, yeah t- tell was, us that story, please. Yeah, there was, um, it's essentially like the, from the mid-60s through the, the end of the 70s, um, there was this huge push by flight attendants who were sort of looking around, um, especially as the women's movement got going, and they could see that sexist restrictions were like falling away in other occupations, but somehow in the airline cabin, it still felt like, you know, 1950. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they start pushing back on these requirements, especially the things like, you know, you couldn't fly once you got married. I mean, Mm -hmm. the airlines had huge turnover when it came to stewardesses, like they might lose 80% in one year. Um, But it was, it was a very exclusive job. I think, I think TWA usually accepted about 3% of applicants. Like, wow. it, was, it was extremely exclusive. Well, because um, at, at that time, I mean, there were certainly less job opportunities for women, but also at a time when travel itself is so much more exclusive, where, like, you can't even afford the plane ticket, the the chance to go on the plane and travel must have been very attractive. It absolutely was. And that's what um, almost all the, the women I interviewed talked about. Like, it was sort of a way to get out of their small town or even their big city or off the farm. And they yeah. had this idea that they were going to, like, see the world. And it was very glamorous. Like, the way the job was portrayed in all the ads, even the recruitment ads, was like, you can become this cosmopolitan woman of the world if once mm-hmm. you become a stewardess. It was a really exclusive and in-demand job. Yeah. You could go to Minneapolis. Think of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just funny because you know air travel is is now the complete opposite to us you know that it it's it's a it's a chore and most of the places that we travel so many of us fly all the time and most of the places we travel to we're not like amazed by right we're like you're traveling for work or you're traveling to visit a relative and you're like yeah, great. Chicago. Okay. <laughs> you know? Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I, I also have to, there must've been an immense amount of harassment on these planes. Uh, an incredible amount of harassment and not just okay. from the passengers, but also from like the pilots and yeah. the supervisors. One, one of the things that women had to do as part of their uniform, they always had to wear a girdle. And mm-hmm. so they were subject to these sort of girdle checks when like a supervisor or it could be a pilot. The pilots could really do whatever they wanted. They would be able to sort of grab their ass um, mm-hmm. and check if they were wearing a girdle and they could just do that at any time. But um, wow. the, the there was a lot of there was like a generally a lot of harassment. But really, that was um, due to I think the airlines pushing so hard on this like sexy stewardess image. They were kind of inviting the passengers almost to take advantage of them. 
Yeah, and the restriction that they have to be single, like, what is the justification for that other than, hey, uh, the women are accessible to you, available to you, right? Or or was there any other justification that they offered for that? (laughs) There are some really amazing justifications. In the book, I cover a couple of hearings they had at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission um, when the stewardesses start fighting back against the no marriage rule. You know, they start Mm -hmm. pushing back. They lodge complaints at the EEOC. And the airlines start fighting all these complaints. And they say that, no, it's a job for women. Women have already, like, have actually, they use the word girls. They say that girls have always done this job and girls can do it well. And their inherently female makeup makes them good at doing the job. And they would list the things that women were better at than men. Um, Mm. Things like caring for other people and decor. Their interest in decor was apparently a a qualification, (laughs) a reason to restrict the job for men and to keep to hire only women and to not let them get married. They said that if women got married, it would make it would hurt their business because their husbands would start calling the airlines complaining about why their wives weren't home. (laughs) Okay. And that they also said that a married woman's number one occupation is her husband and children. And so that's why one of the reasons they didn't want to hire married women. How is she going to decorate the inside of the plane when she's decorating her own home? We need her to adjust the potted plants on top of the piano at the back of the plane. <laughs> what, the, what, what, yeah. a, what a fucking mirror universe in many ways. Um, uh, but OK, so how did the how did the stewardesses start fly, uh, fighting back? That's that's really the meat of the story. Right. Well, and for a lot of them, they started getting older. And then they realized, you know, when you're 19 and you sign a contract to work as a stewardess, and even though the contract says you can't, you know, get married or you have to leave when you turn 32, like, you think that's a million years away. You think, mm-hmm. like, forget it. I'll, I'll be, you know, I'll figure this out long before then. I'm just going to do this right now. So they signed these contracts and a lot of them took the job and they loved the job. Like, you know, some of that glamorous aspect was was really true. And sometimes they were flying all over to interesting places and going out to dinner. And this was not the age of like they would stay in the closest, crappiest airport hotel and get there in a shuttle bus. Like there would be a car to pick them up at the airport and they would stay at decent hotels. And if you worked for, you know, one of the ones that flew overseas, like Pan Am, like you really were seeing the world. Like what mm-hmm. everyone thought of as the glamorous life of stewardess, you were actually living that. Mm-hmm. Um, So they liked the job and they all of a sudden realized that, yeah, they were about to be fired or they saw their friends losing their job. And they started to think like, this is this isn't fair. This is ridiculous. And you could also watch, you know, around you, the pilots getting older. Pilots could fly until they were 60 and the ground crew and the cleaners and everyone else could keep their jobs as long as they wanted. But they couldn't. So they started lodging complaints with the EEOC. They were like some of the first people to lodge complaints there and. Once they started doing that, the complaints just started stacking up and stacking up. And the EEOC eventually had to take some action. And parallel with that, they launched a bunch of lawsuits and they sort of attacked on both those fronts. And in addition, they put some pressure on their unions to to push back against the airlines. But for a long time, that was less successful and they had more success with their with their lawsuits. Okay, so let's let's break some of that down, because I would imagine that even the project, if you're a uh, stewardess at the time, of just organizing other stewardesses like together would be difficult um, because a you're you're working in small groups and you're traveling all over the place. Maybe they don't, you know. There's is there one place that they can all get together and talk, but also I, I don't know. That must have seemed unusual to like even even start that process of organizing, wouldn't it? That that would be what I would imagine. I uh, it it was. 
different, I think, from a lot of other things. Like you said, it's not like organizing workers in a factory who come to work at nine and they leave at five and they're yeah. all in the same place. Like they're always traveling. Their schedules change every month. Um, so much, so many of the papers that I went through researching this book are just letters from stewardesses written from hotels all around the country. They're all written on hotel stationery. Like they're always mm. on the move. Yeah. Um, but stewardesses have been organized for a really long time at almost every airline. Um, yeah. I think Delta is the, the one lingering big exception. And so they always had a union. And when they kind of figured out how to make the union work for them, that, that made some, some big change. But you have to also look at the idea that a lot of these women they thought, okay, like, I'll do this for a few years between high school or college and getting married, and then I'll quit. And, you know, it's very hard to get people to care about things like, you know, career longevity when they fully expect to be married in a couple of years and yeah. off the job. Um, and, and that's a technique that's often used by employers to try to dissuade people from organizing. They say, well, this is uh, this is part-time work. This is, no one really expects this as a career. If you don't like it, leave. You know, uh, for instance, uh, even just taking Amazon, right? Amazon is seasonal work for many people. And they say, this is just, you're just coming in for three months and making a couple extra bucks to buy Christmas presents, you know, Uber, that kind of thing. Um, and it takes a big shift in attitude to, to say what you were sort of saying that some of them were saying that, hey, I don't want to leave the job. I like the job. I'm going to make the job better. Um, it's that's sort of the difference, a big difference maker in a successful or organizing or not. Um, how did they uh, how did they you know leap across that gap? Because I could imagine at the beginning of the process, it would you know, you'd be one stewardess talking to another and they'd be like, hey, I'm just I'm just trying to make a couple extra bucks until I get married. Right. Um, like like <laughs> yeah. I'm not I'm not I, I don't want to get involved. You know, that's absolutely it. Like um, one of the main characters in my book, Pat Gibbs, um, she was an organizer. She you know, she was a an officer in the union. And her <laughs> her technique for getting people to come to union meetings was free snacks. She realized that, that free cake is a, a building block of power, and she would try and get people involved by, by offering them free snacks. Um, she would also try and stir people up and get them mad by pointing out all the things that the men got that they didn't, that they didn't get. And yeah. sure, some people still did not care about this, but when you, you know, especially with the women's movement starting up, like when they actually could put the job in context. Mm -hmm. And like I said, you could see women sort of climbing career ladders and making progress all around you, but you were like really stuck in your job. That sort of incited a little bit of um, motivation, let's say. And when the court cases, when they started winning some court cases and they started winning some some recognition from the EEOC, then like those restrictions started to fall. You know, the, the age restriction eventually went away. The marriage restriction went away. The pregnancy restriction went away. And then the job turned into a career. And once that happened, mm. then they could really turn their attention to things like working conditions, like yeah. wearing high heels on the plane, for example. You know, mm -hmm. um, they, they're walking maybe eight miles in, you know, up and down the plane on the, in yeah. the aisles during a shift and wearing three inch heels while, while doing that seemed a little bit of a, and, an unreasonable demand. And the plane is bumpy. And my understanding is planes used to fly lower then. So there would be, you know, more turbulence. And so you're walking around eight miles in turbulence and heels. We interviewed uh, Pat Gibbs on Adam Ruins Everything. She's an, she's an incredible person and a, an incredible lab, labor leader. Uh, really cool that you spoke to her. 
but I want to ask, oh yeah, just, just one more piece of context I'm curious about. Cause right now when you, uh, you know, you're on a plane, the flight attendants are very much part of the crew, right? Like they, we all know now, or at least we, oh, many of us have gotten the message that like, you know, safety is the most important thing and that that's what, you know, those folks are there for. And also, you know, there's a lot, you know, disarm doors and cabin checks and all these sort of, sort of things. And there's like a lot of communication between the pilot and the crew. Um, was that the case in the sixties, early seventies, or was that something that started to grow over time? Like the, the idea of the stewardesses slash flight attendants as like a very serious part of the, uh, airline of the, you know, the takeoff and landing and all the other <laughs> parts of making sure the plane gets in safely. Um, well, that was always part of the job. They've been doing mm-hmm. that job since they first got on the plane. You got know? It. Um, and it's actually thanks to the efforts of stewardesses in my book that you can now think about flight attendants as safety professionals instead of, you know, flying cocktail waitresses. Yeah. Um, they really fought to, like, have themselves taken seriously. And that was one of the things that they could protest with with the ads, the super sexist ads that were coming out in the 70s. And they were like, sexualizing stewardesses is unsafe because passengers do not take us seriously. Like, you know, one of them would tell a man to put his seatbelt on and he'd say like, oh, I've been flying since before you were born. Or they would be running the safety check and people are just kind of like staring at their hot pants. Hot pants and go-go boots was a, was a, a popular uniform in, during one year in the 70s. Like, I can't It was the time really of laughing and, you know, all that. I get it. But it's, it's, it's still funny to imagine. Uh, I honestly try to think about myself trying to deliver hot coffee to like 200 passengers wearing hot pants and go like lace up go-go boots. I find that overwhelming. But then like trying to get them to listen to you and to take you seriously when you're like, well, we're going to have an emergency landing. Um, or if you're wearing like a, a yeah. button that says fly me and you're trying to direct people to the emergency exit, you can see there's sort of like a dissonance there and why yeah. passengers might not have taken them as seriously as they might. But that importance to the process, I also imagine, is like a big source of strength for those uh, workers when they're you know trying to organize that. Like, hey, we play, play a really important play a really important role here. You do need us to take off, <laughs> right? We're not just we're not just waitresses, right? Like, it is we are part of the crew, and if we do not do this, then none of this happens. Which is like a very, you know, that's that's a position of strength to a certain extent. Yeah, I mean, it's like they're certainly essential members of the crew, and for sure, they the plan the plane cannot take off without flight attendants. But they were um, because there was so much turnover in the job, at, you know, especially with the no marriage and no kids and yeah. um, and no no aging <laughs> rules that they airlines would replace them in a second. Like, and you've seen, you know, you can see that with strikes, even in the 1993 strike, like there was a massive strike back then, and like they just brought in other workers. Yeah, in, like in a second because they thought they could train them in a few weeks and get them on the plane. And that was it. So tell me about the union. When did they, or I, maybe there's a couple different unions. There often are in cases like this, but um, how did uh, stewardesses slash flight attendants to use both terms um, uh, begin to join the labor movement? Well, like I said, flight attendants have always been organized, which is, or at least since the forties, which is really amazing. Oh, really? Um, Yeah. Even even before the sixties. Okay. Even before the sixties. Yeah. They've been organized for a very long time. Um, But for some reason, even though it was only women who were like domestic airlines were, didn't hire men until 1971. Mm -hmm. So it was only women for all of those years, but somehow the leaders of the flight attendant unions were always men. 
And huh. the flight attendant unions were affiliated to, one of them was affiliated to the pilots union, which basically took charge of the flight attendants and made all the decisions for them. Wow. And in the other case, um, in the case of the stewardesses I talk about in the book, the American Airlines flight attendants, along with TWA and a bunch of other huge airlines, they were affiliated to the transport workers union. Um, also, almost all men. <laughs> uh-huh. And so they they had these unions, but the their decisions were still being made mostly by men. Um, And that's part of what causes this sort of uproar in my book and the revolution that I talk about, which is when the stewardesses decide that they've had enough and they're interested in leading their own union and not being told what to do. Wow. I mean, yeah, this is like, we're we're in a wonderful period of like, you know, uh, union power and and people's interest in unions growing. And it's, of course, always better to be in union union than not to be in one. But once you are in one, there's always questions of how is the union structured? Are the workers represented by the union actually represented well? And there's so many cases of two-tier, three-tier unions where people are part of a union that is actually serving only one class of the workers. And, you know, there needs to be some kind of structural reform. That's the case in there are unions in my industry that, that are that work that way. Um, so how did they take power in their in their union or they started their own union? Is that what happened? That's essentially what happened. A um, little bit of a spoiler. <laughs> but yeah, there's essentially like a giant revolution among flight attendants um, because not only are they fighting with their employers, they're fighting with the airlines who are, you mm-hmm. know, don't give them the same benefits as men, don't give them the same pay, insist that they have like perfectly polished nails and can take them off the flight if they don't. Um, so not only are they fighting their employers uh, on all these things, in a lot of cases, they're fighting their union leaders as well because the TWU, yeah. Transport Workers Union, it's mostly former subway workers, former bus drivers. Um, it's a lot of uh, older white men who think mm-hmm. that they know best. And the stewardesses, you know, when it comes to bargaining time, they list all the things that they want. Single rooms, single hotel rooms on layovers was a huge one for them, like, mm. a, like a deal breaker. They previously um, had to room with each other or? Yeah, like if you were on you know, a long flight and you had a layover in a hotel before flying back, um, pilots got their own rooms. And once men came on board, the male flight attendants would get their own room. But the women always had to share a room. Whoa. And you can imagine, like, if you're a flight attendant, you're flying all night, and then you have to share a room um, with another woman. Women would be reading their book in the bathtub so, like, the bedside light wouldn't disturb their companion. Or uh-huh. you couldn't make a phone call because somebody wanted to sleep or somebody snored. Um, so this was right. a huge issue for them. Like they you were need exhausted. your rest. You've been flying all day. Yes. Yeah. And you just, just like need a little privacy. bit of time yourself. Yeah. 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 Um, and of course, like men, you know, men came on board in like 1971. And then the whole crew goes from the airplane to the hotel together. Pilots go off to their own rooms. And then these junior men who have just joined the job, they get their key and they go sauntering off to their own room. And women who have been working for 10 years have to share a room. It's wow. just really, it's degrading. Yeah. So this became like a huge issue for them. They were they were like, okay, you have to have single rooms, like enough of this. And um, this was an issue on what the transport workers were not interested in. They were not interested in bargaining for it. They were not interested in getting it for the stewardesses. They didn't even want to talk about it when they had their discussions with American mm-hmm. Airlines. This was like a total disconnect between what the women wanted and what the men were willing to even discuss on, so supposedly, on their behalf. So that was the sort of incident where they kind of started to realize that maybe being represented by people who are who are not, not stewardesses was was a bit of a downside. Um, Got it. Well, yeah. let's talk about after we take a short break. Let's talk about how they actually took that power and made that change. We'll be right back with more Nell McShane Wolfhart. 
As a Factually listener, you're probably aware of my unwavering commitment to online privacy. Well, Delete Me has been an indispensable tool for me for many years, long before they even started advertising on this show, I've been using their wonderful service. In today's digital landscape, you know, it's alarmingly easy for data brokers to traffic your personal information online. In fact, I would almost guarantee that your personal information is on multiple data broker sites on the internet right now. It's not even the dark web, it's the regular web. These data brokers may be peddling and exchanging your name, phone number, and home address all without your knowledge. And trying to locate and remove all this data yourself can feel like an impossible task because there can be dozens of these sites. But that is what Delete Me does for you. Delete Me's team of experts scours the depths and the breadth of the internet to locate and remove your personal data. Within just seven days, you'll receive a comprehensive report detailing their findings and what they have removed. It can be hard to believe, but approximately 41% of Americans find themselves vulnerable to various forms of online harassment, and this means doxing, scams, and even identity theft, all of which pose significant threats to your financial security and could potentially derail career opportunities. I mean, I used to get weird people calling my cell phone all hours of the day or night until I signed up for Delete Me and it cut it right out. So if you wanna safeguard yourself like that and live with the peace of mind that experts are hunting down and removing your personal information every three months, then check out Delete Me. Go to joindeleteme.com Adam and get 20% off for all consumer plans with the code Adam. That's joindeleteme.com Adam. Okay, we're back with Nell McShane Wolfhart. So we've been talking about how stewardesses back in the 60s, 70s uh, were part of these unions that did not represent them well, did not represent their issues. Um, so what did they do in response to that? How did they make the change that they needed? Well, they tried a, a bunch of different things. Um, they kind of started gradually standing up for themselves more and more in, about the single hotel rooms issue, which is which I just talked about. They actually voted down the contract uh, twice mm. before finally agreeing, before finally getting single rooms, before fi that finally convinced the Transport Workers Union that they were serious, and so they managed to bargain for that. But this was, like, unprecedented. Stewardesses did not vote down their contract. They yeah. were happy with whatever the TWU brought back. So it's a big deal whenever workers vote down a contract that their union leaders negotiate. The union leaders negotiate the contract. The voter, the the workers get to vote on whether they want it or not. And if the voter, if the workers vote no, that's like a big repudiation uh, because it's like, hey, our own union is not giving us what we want. Go back to the fucking negotiating table, please. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. It was like a big deal. American Airlines management was shocked and horrified and everyone was very pissed off, mm -hmm. which is sort of the beginning of a, a series of pissing people off that doesn't really end <laughs> until mm -hmm. the end of the book. Um, and so that was like one one of the kind of for like formative instances. And then one of my main characters, um, Pat Gibbs, is she starts to get involved in this sort of splinter movement. And the idea is that they are going to leave the Transport Workers Union and form their own independent women-led union. Mm. Um, so there's a tremendous amount of intrigue and organizing and parking lot fights and <laughs> drama. Yeah. Um, and in the end, they there's a vote and the American Airlines flight attendants, uh, of which there are thousands, vote to leave the Transport Workers Union and form their own independent union, which is the Association of Professional Flight Attendants, and it is still around today. Wow. And that is still the union that represents American Airlines flight attendants today. Yes. 
Yes. That is so cool. Um, but that is such an incredibly, I want to say, aggressive thing to do. Like, it is very, very difficult for union members to say, hey, we are going to leave this union and start a new one. Like, just to get that, first of all, just, just getting that cleared legally is very difficult. You're basically guaranteed to be sued if you try something like that today. Um, but also, you are, you have to fight with other workers who you're in a union with. You have to say... Uh, that's that that would be seen by many as a betrayal in many cases. So it's very, very difficult to do, much less get people to go along with it. Absolutely. And that's like a huge point of conflict in the book with, between the women who wanted to stay with the transport workers. Um, one of them, Tommy, um, she was the president of the union and she said, like, we can do it and we need to have like a, you know, play with the big boys. And if we just stay in here, we'll be running the damn union. Mm-hmm. And so she was absolutely the, for staying with the TWU, staying with organized labor and like, slowly building a path to power in that way mm-hmm. while Pat and her sort of um, group of subversives <laughs> is running this alternative campaign to have their own women led union. And so that's kind of the climax of the book and like the sort of head butting that went on and, and the arguments and like the really, um, it was a really difficult time, but also a very exciting time, I would say. Yeah. But that's such a fascinating struggle because uh, I, both of these, both of these women share the same goal but they have a completely divergent way to go about it. And uh, I mean, was there, is there merit in, in both approaches? Did, did Tommy have her, uh, you know, have her day? Was there progress made on that front as well? Or, or did history prove one of them right? <laughs> That's such a great question. And even when I talk to them today, there's still a lot of hard feelings about this, even though this yeah. happened in like the, you know, the late 1970s. You know, they became resigned to it. And Tommy, um, who's like such a great character, such an interesting person, once the vote happened, then it became clear that a majority of flight attendants wanted to go independent. They wanted to have their own union. She was like, okay, this is what they want. This is what we'll do. And she went She went with it. Um, yeah. A lot of other people were not so forgiving. Um, <laughs> and even if I talk to Pat today, she'll say that she wasn't sure that now she's not sure that she was right in doing that, that she doesn't know. I mean, it's impossible to know what it would have been like if they stayed with the Transport yeah. Workers Union. But um, there wasn't even a high-ranking TWU official who was a woman until 1981. So wow. that might give you some idea. Yeah. And, like, sometimes those power structures are such that, you know, you can't always change everything from the inside because you might be so disenfranchised within a certain power structure that – the best option is to create a new one um, and to and to build your own power rather than try to change some larger system. Yeah, 100 percent. And I think that there was just there was like the slow path to power, which was staying with the TWU and mm-hmm. trying to build power within this very traditional structure. Or there was a sort of renegade maverick <laughs> path to power, which was just <laughs> going out there and taking it. Yeah. Um, and so they went one way and, you know, they could have gone another, but um, it definitely makes for a more interesting story that they decided to forge <laughs> their own path. It sounds like they were also pushed pushed in that direction by the failure of the union to actually get them what they needed. Um, I, I really want to ask, though, I'm sorry, I've been meaning to ask this for a while. You're wearing a shirt right now that says uh, stewardesses for women's right, r- women's rights, which is. First of all, thank you for for dressing up for this interview. <laughs> but but I assume I assume that this was a contemporary group at the time, and and I'm just curious what the what the shirt represents. Yeah, this was actually one of the, my favorite things about writing this book was learning about this group called 
I mean, you can guess it's from the 70s. It's called Stewardesses for Women's Rights. And their logo is sort of the, the pictograph for like the woman symbol of like the circle with the cross and uh, half of a pair of airline wings, like the sort mm. of wings that you might see, you know, a pilot wear. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a group that started in the 70s. It's a big part of the book. And it's about what's basically one of the ways that women started pushing back with the airlines was a group they formed to protest and to kind of build sisterhood. And it was women from all different airlines. They would meet in like a church basement in the village. And then they expanded. They they got members from all different airlines, like all over the country. They grew rapidly. They ended up with an office in 30, in 30 Rock, in the 30 Rock building. Wow. Um, and they got donations and they threw like big parties and they got so much press because obviously like stewardesses getting mad about things was an amazing news hook and sure. everybody wanted to write about them. And basically they were just like this group of sort of like, you can sort of imagine them with like long hair and bell bottoms um, <laughs> protesting. They would protest the ad agencies that put out these super sexist ads. They would, uh, they would like picket them. They would push back against their employers. They, um, they did all this and then they would, you know, put their hair up and put on their, their mini skirts and go trotting off to work in, in the cabin. Wow. And um, one of their big supporters, the woman who was there from the beginning, was Gloria Steinem. Wow. So they were really like at the center of the women's rights movement of the time, like a, just a really important group. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, they're really amazing. And they got an incredible amount done. They were only um, around for maybe four or five years, wow. but they had conferences. They would bring in experts to talk about the psychological issues that women were facing on the planes. They um, they basically would help each other and encourage each other. They wrote letters to each other. They were always signed in sisterhood. They were just an incredibly supportive group. Um, eventually, like, fell apart a little bit because people started moving on and people like Tommy, like one of my main... I, <laughs> I describe them as characters, but these are real women still alive today. Mm-hmm. But um, she realized that even though Stewardesses for, women, Stewardesses for Women's Rights was getting all these headlines and bringing all this attention to the cause that they didn't have a seat at the table. And she realized that if she wanted to actually like seize power and make real change in her job, that she would have to join the the union and get, get, um, take a position of power in the union, which she did. Um, Just hearing you tell this story and talk about these images um, of, you know, women dressed in bell bottoms and getting on the plane and, you know, go-go boots and like strikes and all these things. Uh, it makes me go, man, this would make a great TV show. And then I remember it was made into a TV show. There was a TV <laughs> show called Pan Am that came out like 10 years ago in the wake of Mad Men. This is when every every network was trying to rip off Mad Men. And the show was, I don't, I work in the entertainment industry. I don't like to talk shit. The show wasn't good. <laughs> It was, it was, I watched, I watched like a couple episodes. They made one of the stewardesses a spy for some reason. It was like very broad. Um, but it's such a cool, like, um, the whole milieu is so cool that I, I'm like, oh, it needs, it needs a better treatment somewhere. Well, from your mouth to God's ears, Adams. <laughs> <laughs> Let's try a movie. If anybody's listening, look, I can't get, I can't get this movie made, but if anybody's listening, uh, maybe, maybe, uh, hit up now and talk options. Um, so let's talk about once this, uh, once this union, the new union was actually formed. What, is, what was Pat Gibbs's union called? The Association of Professional Flight Attendants and professional also was like put in there very deliberately, yeah. you know, sort of counteract this sort of sky bunny image. We are um, professional. Like this is a career. This is an occupation. This is a vocation. 
Um, so once they had formed their new union, how did they go about making change? What sort of changes did they make and what sort of techniques did they use? Well, they were able to deal directly with their employer, with American Airlines. They were like, all of a sudden, they had a seat at the table. They were doing bargaining. They were doing all this stuff for themselves, which is a big change from having everything sort of filtered through the men at the Transport Workers Union. And they were, well, <laughs> Pat Gibbs especially is like a pretty ballsy um, straight shooter, I guess. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of um, confrontation, I would say, that probably hadn't been there when it was just some white men talking to some other white men. Yeah. Um, but they, well, that, the book is sort of ends after they form their own particular union. Um, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll write a sequel and talk more about what, what goes on at, uh, af, as they're running their union. Mm. But it's... Um, they're able, essentially, they're they're finally in a position where they can talk directly and ask directly for what they want. Um, yeah. And, and they're pretty good at getting it. You said that there was a strike in the early 90s? Yes, T in Tell me more about that. I, I, I was alive at that point, but I don't remember this strike. Tell me more, tell me more about it. Um, this is a strike that flight attendants, even today, they, like, still have the scars and they talk about it. And sometimes mm. my interviews with flight attendants about what happened in the 60s and 70s would even get derailed because they feel so passionately about what happened in 1993, which was mm. basically a, a huge strike uh, right around Thanksgiving weekend, like a very important time for travel. And yeah. the CEO would basically, they all went on strike and they, um, the CEO basically brought in scabs um, mm. to, to work as flight attendants. And wow. it was like, it was very traumatic for them. It, I think it was resolved by Bill Clinton, maybe after like four or five mm -hmm. days, but it was a huge issue for them. I mean, as you know, like striking is a last resort for, yes. for workers. Like they do not want to go on strike. But um, throughout the period of deregulation and as, you know, airline fares are, are, are going down and wages start going down and basically these, the air, uh, a lot of flight attendants start losing their jobs, like things kind of get worse in the airline industry for a long time. And they were pushing back against that. But yeah, it was, it was a difficult time. It mu it must have been especially difficult to go on strike because that was have been, that would have been just like maybe a decade after the air traffic controllers strike, which was a disastrous strike that that like honestly went so poorly it like hurt the entire labor movement in America um, because Reagan like broke the back of the air traffic controllers. Um, we were talking off off mic about my. Uh, interview with Stephen Greenhouse who wrote a labor history book and that's like a whole chapter in his book beaten down worked up about like how that how that strike was was a huge debacle and I so I can just imagine like the prospects of <laughs> going on strike in the early 90s in the airline industry must have been uh must have been very nerve-wracking to even contemplate for sure yeah and like even in the like, 60s and 70s like there are talks of strikes when people when the when these women are feeling like really disenfranchised and extra upset, but they, it never comes to that point precisely because it's like such a traumatic experience for yeah. them. Um, and, you know, trying to find ways to work around it, either at the bargaining table or through other kinds of negotiations or through lawsuits, um, it, that worked better for them. But okay, through all of this, you know, union effort, bargaining, creating a new union, uh, wielding their power when they had to, what gains were these flight attendants able to win for themselves and how that how did that affect our own experience of flying? Oh, that's a great question. Um, well, starting in the 60s, once they eliminate the age rule and the marriage rule, like if you see a flight attendant today who's wearing a wedding ring or in her 40s, that's thanks to these women that I'm talking yeah. about in my book. Like they did that. 
Um, and then other things like, you know, even with the uniforms and like when men came on board in 1971, um, the women are like, okay, we can use this. We can leverage this to like fight back against things like having to wear a girdle mm-hmm. <laughs> on the plane, um, which you can imagine it's a very restrictive garment and having to wear that while walking eight miles in high heels at yeah. 30,000 feet is not the most comfortable experience. Yeah. Or things like, you know, like like nail polish, various different things. Um, there was, you know, there was basically all these appearance-related rules that were things, of course, they were not being paid to take care of, you know, the the hair and the nails and the uniforms and all these things. They had to pay for their own luggage. But when male flight attendants came on board, they were allowed to use whatever luggage they wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, there were just all these discriminatory rules. And so then they were able to, to push back. Once men came on board, they were able to push back against some of those rules by saying, the men don't do this. You know, why do we have to do it? And using the words sex discrimination frequently. Yeah. Yeah, I I I imagine that there was also, you know, over this over this period of time we're talking about a lot of changes in our own government's treatment of sex discrimination, sexual harassment, uh that sort of thing in the workplace and that this was a that helped them make their case or maybe they even drove some of those changes, did they? They were actually um revolutionary and that when the Civil Rights Act of 1964 Passed um, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which banned employment discrimination on the basis of sex, race, religion, all those things. Stewardesses were some of the first people to seize on that. And they were like, okay, we can actually make a difference with this. And there's a lot of stories, some of them maybe apocryphal, about how sex was just added to the act as kind of an afterthought. But it really was about race. Mm -hmm. Um, But, like, sex was sort of slipped in by one of these senators, and they were like, okay, now we can make a difference. And so they started lodging complaints and, like I said, filing lawsuits, and all based on sex discrimination in employment. Um, So they really managed to, through through their actions, through using Title VII, they established case law, and some of that has, like, gone on to benefit working women in America today. Like, those basically making it illegal to treat men and women differently in in the workplace. I mean, <laughs> sometimes that's just theoretical <laughs> or yeah. it's just on paper, but for sh- it made like an absolute real difference to, no, to working that women is, in the U.S. That is hugely groundbreaking. So this law goes into effect, the the big Civil Rights Act, and they are the first to use that, the, the, or the language of that law in order to, you know, like, like bring suit or bargain for, you know, hey, this is discriminatory behavior. You can't treat women this way. And then that just became case law that benefited everybody. Exactly right. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that is <laughs> I really remember, you know, when I interviewed Pat Gibbs um, sitting there with her and thinking, like, I am really sitting with a uh, a really important civil rights leader was the feeling that I had. And I sort of didn't realize that until I was like sitting with her talking to her about it, um, that that it really hit me because, uh, you know, I was doing so many interviews a day, you know, like working on this TV show really fast. OK, let's sit down and do this one. And then I'm talking to her going like, wait, hold on a second. This this person is like incredibly historically significant, took these heroic risks like this. This person should be on a fucking coin. You know, um, <laughs> did, did you have that sense when you were talking to these women? It must have been really remarkable. Oh, 100%. And I think part of that is that, you know, this idea of, like, the stewardess as this kind of, like, pliable, smiling person who's just there to help, like, that has really stuck with us. You know, that is, like, mm-hmm. when I was when I was researching this book, 
Um, and I was, you know, Googling things like stewardess porn just kept showing up in my Google searches <laughs> because this idea of like the sexy stewardess and like is so prevalent. And even right. in our culture today, like it has not gone away. So to contrast, like the behavior of some of these women and like they were militant, like they're out there picketing, they're bargaining, like they're really making an absolute difference. Um, and like pushing back on these, you know, incredibly sexist mores of the time. Uh, it just doesn't jibe with the idea we have of, stu- of a stewardess. Like, and like I said, even now. So I think that's what is like so interesting about them is that um, they have this image. And, and they also like to use that image to their advantage. You know, sometimes they would go to Congress or they would pick it and they would wear their uniforms and they would have their hair neatly done and like makeup perfect. And then they would be like out there fighting for their rights. And it's just this contrast between what people yeah. think a stewardess should be like and what she's actually like is huge. And yeah. I think that's so intriguing. But it must have been what what a risk to take because, you know, not only are they having to, you know, fight for their for their rights as workers against these large corporations, they're like violating a lot of gender norms uh, by doing so. Like these very deep seated ideas about what women should and shouldn't do. And we have those ideas today, but like in the sixties in this particular way, sixties, early seventies must've been all the stronger. Um, it, it must take an incredible amount of bravery to do that. Absolutely. And and some of the people who were pushing back on on making these changes were also stewardesses, um, mm-hmm. like these extremely strict weight limits that they had, you know, for at every airline. Um, a lot of the stewardesses liked those weight limits because they said, and this is a direct quote, it would keep the fatties out. Like they really reveled <laughs> in this glamorous stewardess image. You know, they like they loved it. They embraced it and they wanted they wanted that to to continue. So like some, you know, pushing back against these rules was not beneficial for them in that way. I just love that that was a direct quote. Yeah, I know. know. It's awful. It's really awful. It is, but it's also making me laugh. I'm sorry. Um, Just, uh, just to use that, that bluntly. Uh, I mean, why do you think that this story isn't more told, right? Because this is, this is such a, you know, you like, I, I I did this on Adam Ruins Everything because it was pitched by one of the researchers in our room. I don't know where they came up with it, right? But I I told you in passing for an interview, oh, we just did this cool segment. And you're like, oh, wow, this should be a book. I presume you looked around and go, oh, there's not really, this hasn't really been publicized that much. Seems like there's room for a book here, right? Um, uh, why, why are these folks not on you know, Mount Rushmore on the coins on the, you know, whatever, you know, why, why is there only like half a season of a bad network show made about them? (laughs) You know, why, 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 why is this story not, not more famous? I guess the short answer would be they're women. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, great. Moving on. Next question. Uh, No, sorry. (laughs) If you have more to say, please do. (laughs) No, I think that's pretty much it. Um, You know, part of it is a stewardess image. It's like, you know, people do not expect this behavior of of stewardesses. And so um, they kind of like quash it a little bit. But I think just plain old sexism, you know, it's not Mm -hmm. not considered interesting or ladylike for... for flight attendants to go on strike or to picket or to, yeah. you know, push back. Um, but I mean, so uh, th- thankfully they did. And I know that, you know, the stewardess unions or sorry, I'm sorry. We've been saying stewardess often because that was the term at the time. Now we'll say the flight attendant unions, right, are still some of the most more militant, powerful unions in aviation. What are the conditions for those workers now? Uh, are they 
I, I know I assume they're still fighting for those gains, but are their work conditions still improving? Are there are there backslides happening in this space? Like, do you have any sense of that? Well, we're we're talking at a particular time when um, still, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, when things are, I would say, worse for flight attendants than they've been in a very long time. Like sure. every day in the news, there's stuff about like passengers abusing flight attendants over masks or generally just like, you know, people have been punched. There was that guy who was the passenger who was famously duct taped to a seat mm-hmm. <laughs> on Frontier Airlines because he'd been groping the flight attendants and yeah. physically assaulting them. And he was like, hey, because- in the 60s, this was encouraged. <laughs> right. What's the problem? I got an ad here from 1965 says I'm supposed to do this. <laughs> I was mostly amazed that they just had like duct tape on the plane, like next to little cans of Coke or something. I for thought that real. was pretty, pretty prepared. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's definitely a difficult time for flight attendants at the moment. And a lot of them are overworked, you know, during the pandemic, you know, things, flights were canceled, uh, people were furloughed. And now they're bringing them back and there's not enough of them. People don't want to work, especially, you know, in unsafe COVID conditions. Um, You could basically just Google like what's happening with flight attendants now. And you'll see that they're like the ones who went back on the line are, which is, you know, the expression for working, um, are overworked, underpaid, totally exhausted, like Mm -hmm. working shifts that are too long. Um, So it's, it's an especially tough time for flight attendants. And if you look at the other, Sarah Nelson, who's the president of the other big flight attendant union, the mm-hmm. um, Association of Flight Attendants, she's always out there speaking out on this. And like she has a lot to say about how the treatment of flight attendants right now is untenable and it, it really can't yeah. continue. But it also does show you the legacy of the work that these women did that just just you mentioned Sarah Nelson. She's one of the more prominent labor leaders in the country, and she's the head of one of the flight attendant unions that that this is still like a a really powerful tradition um, in American uh, American labor, that these are workers who still really stand up for themselves and fight. Absolutely. And I think like the kind of through line, like from from the women of my book from the 60s and 70s through to Sarah Nelson today, like the major takeaway from all of this is that women cannot win without unions and that unions cannot win without women. Mm-hmm. That is a that is a really good that is a really good takeaway. I really enjoyed that. I mean, uh, well, thank you so much for coming on to tell this story. Now, this has been really wonderful. I'm so thank you again for acknowledging my incredibly large contribution to your book. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I really am grateful for the idea. (laughs) I've gotten so many ideas from other people mentioning something to me and I've never had a spot to acknowledge them. So I appreciate even having a mention. Well, Nell, thank you so much for coming on to tell us about this. What is the name of the book exactly? And where can people get it? Uh, The book is called The Great Stewardess Rebellion. And it's going to be, (laughs) <laughs> Thank you. It took a lot of work to get there. Um, and <laughs> Title's always on... the hardest part. I know. It is. It's always the hardest part. <laughs> it really is. Um, it's out on April 19th, and you can pre-order it right now everywhere you buy books. Got it. And if it, if you're listening to this and it is after April 19th, which it might be, you can pick up a copy at our special bookshop, factuallypod.com slash books. Nell McShane Wolfhart, thank you so much again for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Adam. This was really fun. Well, thank you once again to Nell McShane Wolfhart for coming on the show. If you want to check out her book, The Great Stewardess Rebellion, head to factuallypod.com slash books. That's factuallypod.com slash books. And you'll be supporting not just this show, but your local bookshop as well. 
I want to thank everyone who backs our Patreon at the $15 a month level. That's Adam Simon, Allison Liberato, Alan Liska, Antonio LB, Aurelio Jimenez, Charles Anderson, Chris Staley, Drill Bill, M. Hillary Wolken, Julia Russell, Kelly Casey, Mark Long, Michael Warnicky, Michelle Glittermum, Miles Gillingsrud, Nicholas Morris, Paul Mauck, Rachel Nieto, Robin Madison, Samantha Crockett, Spencer Campbell, Susan E. Fisher, and Tyler Darach. If you'd like to join them, head to patreon.com slash adamconover to support the show. I want to thank our producer, Sam Roudman, our engineer, Ryan Connor, Andrew WK for our theme song, the fine folks at Falcon Northwest for building me the incredible custom gaming PC that I'm recording this very episode for you on. You can find me online at adamconover.net or at adamconover wherever you get your social media. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time on Factually. That was a HeadGum Podcast.